want to thank you, Rick, for that song before the lesson. What an awesome responsibility. What an awesome blessing to be able to open our Bibles and listen to what God is speaking to us and to know that we are going to be responsible for responding to what He has spoken to us. And what a blessing that is. We're thankful that He is not a God who has just kind of left us on our own. He's revealed Himself to us and His will to us. We're thankful for that and what a blessing. Grateful that you're with us today, those who are online with us, those who are here in the building, those who may be listening in later uh, as you find these lessons online on our website. We are grateful for your presence, for the desire it shows that you're here that you want to know what God has said and that your desire is to do His will. We want to encourage you in that. We're prayerful this lesson will be an encouragement to you in that. I must confess, this is kind of a Bible nerd lesson, if you'll let me say it that way. This is the kind of lesson that I enjoy studying and the kind of lesson that I enjoy putting together. I'll be doing a comparison of the first few verses in the book of Luke and the first few verses in, in Acts chapter 1, where we see the same writer as he tells us about what, why he's writing these things down as God has revealed them to him. Our brother read Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. I'd like to invite you to read with me now in Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. I think there's a lot of information that uh, Luke has presented to us in just these few verses that help us understand a good bit about how we should approach people as we're teaching them the gospel and the facts that are involved in this that help us as we are uh, building up our own faith. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 reads this way. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Both of these uh, books, Luke and Acts, are written by the same author. They're written by Luke. I think it's important that we take a little bit of a look at the man himself, what we can know about him. He is likely a Gentile. There's some debate about that. There are some who say he may have been a, a Hellenistic Jew who, growing up in the Roman culture, in the Greek culture actually, would have had a name like Luke, which is a Gentile name, but was actually a Jew by birth. But there's no indication of that. In fact, there's indications perhaps to the contrary. We do see in Acts chapter 16 when he joins the story. Uh, in Acts, he's counting, uh, recounting for us the steps of the apostles as they go about teaching, beginning with Peter and, and John in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth as Jesus had told them to go. And as Paul is out uh, in his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, is when Luke joins the party. We'll begin at verse 6, and I want you to notice the tense of the verbs here. Not the tense, but the, the, uh, the agreement of the verbs. When they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought <clears throat> to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. All of a sudden you notice that the verb changes from they and them and the reference to, to those to us and we. And, and Luke is including himself there. And he has uh, come to join Paul at Troas. And so... Uh, there is some indication, perhaps, that he is from that area. 
Um, also in Colossians chapter 4, just trying to establish who Luke might be, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is speaking of some of his co-workers, some who have been helpful to him along the way. He says in Colossians 4, verses 10 and 11, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So he mentions specifically these Jews who have been converted to Christ and who are helping him. But look at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Why didn't he mention them before when he mentioned the ones who were of the circumcision? Well, I believe it's because they're not of the circumcision. These are Greeks. These are Romans uh, in citizenship and not Jews who have also been converted to Christ who are working with him. I think that's the indication here at least. So Luke is likely a Gentile from the region of Troas. And he has traveled extensively with Paul. We see him join the party here in uh, Acts chapter 16. And uh, he is not an apostle. As we read Luke chapter 1, we see he talks about what the apostles, those who were eyewitnesses, what they wrote about. He also has chosen to write some of these things. If that's new to you, I, I confess it was a shock to me the first time I studied the book of Luke and discovered Luke is not an apostle. I just presumed that everyone who wrote the books in the New Testament early on, I presumed they were all apostles. But that is not the case with Luke. He, and it is also not the case with John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. No, neither of those two were apostles of Jesus Christ, though they were prophets. We see that Luke, uh, as I mentioned before, joins, uh, Acts and, uh, joins Paul in Acts chapter 16. So he wasn't with the apostles back in Jerusalem. He's out somewhere uh, in the Roman provinces. And as Paul goes on after Troas, they come to Philippi. And Luke seems to stay on at Philippi. The, the verbs and the, the tenses and the forms change again at verse 40. They went out of the prison where they'd been put in prison in Philippi and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Well, that's because Luke stays in Philippi. Next time we see Luke in the book of Acts, he's going to be picked up when Paul comes through Philippi and is heading back toward Troas several chapters later. So Luke has stayed on in Philippi to help this fledgling congregation, these new converts, to help build them up. And so it's perhaps five years later, maybe more, after Paul has gone on into Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and spent several years in both Corinth and Ephesus, when he finally comes back through Philippi, Luke joins the party again and goes around uh, with Paul starting in Acts 20, verses 1 through 6. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. When he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So Luke is back again when Paul comes through Philippi on his way back to Troas, really on his way to Jerusalem. And we do see that, Paul, that uh, Luke then does accompany Paul onto Jerusalem into the time when Paul is put in prison. We're right, right there in our Acts class on Sunday mornings. When Paul gets put into prison, Luke is there attending to his needs. Luke is not a prisoner with him, but he makes himself a prisoner to help Paul. 
And I believe that that's when Luke has an opportunity to be doing all of his research that will become the books of Luke and Acts, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit in the writing. But he does talk about at the beginning of Luke that he researched these things. He wanted to put them in some sort of an order here. So this is around the years 57 to 60 A.D. that Paul spends time in the prison there in Caesarea. What we learn about Luke is interesting from what we saw earlier in Colossians chapter 4 when he, we were talking about there the fact that he didn't mention him as being of the circumcision, but there is a detail he gives. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Beloved physician, that tells us a couple of things about him. One, that he's well thought of by the brethren. He's a, he's a good man. He's a good servant. Paul obviously thinks a lot of him. And he's a physician. He's a scientist. <laughs> he's someone who's well studied, someone who's organized, and we certainly see that in his writings. In fact, he says to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, I have set about to give you an orderly account. <laughs> when I want to know the order of things and the better details about things, it's Luke's gospel that I read. Matthew is writing around themes, and he's showing Jesus as sort of this new Moses. He's the, the one who's brought fulfillment of what Moses originally was, bringing the people out of Egypt and slavery. Jesus brings everyone out of the slavery to sin. So you've got these great comparisons in Matthew between Moses and Jesus, the lawgiver and then the ultimate word giver. And in Mark's account, you have themes that are set up around more Gentile-type uh, thought, and Mark will, will put things together that, that seem to go together. And there's some, some obvious themes we can see. But Luke seems to go mostly in order. John is dealing with the divinity of Christ, trying to show his deity. But Luke has really set up an orderly account of the things that Jesus did while he was here. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about having a scientist as one who's revealing the word is you've got a physician that ends up confirming these healings that were miraculous, a physician that confirms the resurrection. Here's a man who biologically would say that's impossible, and yet as he teaches and as he reveals this word to Theophilus, he says, no, this is real. <laughs> there is a man who resurrected, and that man has become the Christ. That miracle confirms who he is. I think it's important that we have someone like Luke that is writing this scripture. In a minute, I'll, I'll look at him together with another uh, that is among the, the early disciples of Christ. As I said before, he's not one of the apostles. That shouldn't be a shock to us that he is writing scripture. He is a prophet. Uh, Peter says to us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 that there is no word of God that was written just by the will of men. What he says is, says uh, 2 Peter 1, 21, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What Luke has written is prophecy, is scripture. We have that confirmed in another place as well. I think this is fascinating. Here is the words of the Apostle Paul, who certainly had a high regard for Luke and for the things that Luke wrote. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul says something interesting here. He says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. But then he says, the scripture also says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's something that Jesus directly said. There's only one place that we have that quote from Jesus. That's in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. Paul is quoting scripture from Luke. Perhaps the book of Luke had already been written at the point that Paul is quoting that in 1 Timothy. It's a good possibility. And so he's quoting Luke as scripture. That's a pretty impressive thing. 
right away as Luke is revealing this word that God has given to him, Paul is accepting that as scripture from God, an eyewitness to Luke's revelation, to Luke's spirit-born revelation. Right away it's accepted as scripture, and that's an important distinction to make. What we see about Luke is that he has this Berean spirit. We learn about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, that they studied the scriptures daily to make sure the things they were being told, even by the great apostle Paul, that those things were so, that they were true. And because they studied the word daily, many of them believed, Acts chapter 17 verse 11 tells us. That certainly is the case with Luke. As I said, he's a physician. He's a man who's not just going to accept at someone's word that there is someone resurrected from the dead. He's going to need evidence about that. But he has studied the evidence, and not only that, he's now presenting the same evidence. Luke serves as a great example to us. How scientific-minded we may be, how we may want a lot of proof before we're going to believe anything. Here's a man who was there firsthand, who would have been a natural doubter by the fact that he's a physician, and yet he believed, and he's revealing this information. I think he's really helpful to us. No matter what our background may be, when we come to the Scriptures, we need to analyze the things that are presented as truth. We need to test them. We need to examine the evidence. But we need to be willing to say, yes, this happened, or no, it didn't. But we have someone like Luke who examined firsthand and saw that these things actually happened. Well, who's he writing to? The recipient of both of these letters, Luke and the book of Acts, is a man called Theophilus. His name is very Roman. <laughs> he is certainly a Gentile by the explanation that is given. And his, his name transliterated literally means friend of God. I think that's a great name. <laughs> Here is this, this Roman man who's called Theophilus. Maybe this is something that Luke is just calling him, but I don't believe so. I think the evidence is this is really his name. It's interesting that his register in Scripture... <laughs> we have him several times mentioned as Theophilus, is the same as the register of, of Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, told about this man who never saw death, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11.5 says the reason is he was the friend of God. In the Greek, that is, he was philos theo or philos theo. The same thing that's said later about Abraham in James chapter 2, verse 23, that God justified him because he was the friend of God, Philos Theo, which is the reverse of Theophilus. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So Theophilus, by his name and by the register we have of him in Scripture, is on a par with people like Enoch and Abraham. That's the way Luke is presenting this material to him. He's calling him the friend of God. His name also, in a sense, gives Luke's letters a universal quality. Anyone who would be a friend of God, Luke is talking to you. Listen to what Luke has to say. Look what he's presenting. If you would be the friend of God, then it behooves you to understand these things that Luke is laying out because he has researched this and he has got this revelation from the Lord and he's put this all together in an orderly way. I think it's important that we understand who's, re, who's re receiving this letter originally. Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. That is a title that is typically used for important Roman leadership. We do see that in Acts chapter 23 and verse 26 there. It is uh, Claudius Lysias when he's writing, uh, writing his letter. He says, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. He's using the customary Roman greetings. In fact, this was something that original 
uh, Bible scholars or Bible critics used to criticize Luke and say, well, nobody ever used that term. He just made that up. And then they began to find all kinds of important documents from the Roman era where that term was specifically used and specifically in these provinces where Luke is using the term. And so uh, history and archaeology ended up confirming that Luke knew exactly what he was talking about. He was using real Roman language. What this points to is the fact that Theophilus likely is a real person. This is a real title. This is not something Luke is just kind of making up and throwing out there sort of as a parable or an example that this man really existed and that Luke in some way was a friend of his. He has a relationship and some kind of access to this man who has a powerful title. And so what Luke knew this man needed more than anything else, even though he's a powerful guy in Rome, he needed the power of the gospel. He has some authority that men had given him, but, but Luke takes to him the, the authority that God has given. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the gospel is the authority or the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes the Jew first, but also Theophilus, a Greek. Theophilus' need is our need. In the same way that Luke presents an example to us of this scientific, this analytic mind that is willing to accept the truth of the gospel as it's presented, here's another man who is this high up powerful person who could easily dismiss this as hearsay and myth, and yet he's examining the scriptures. It's the need of every person we know. The same thing that Theophilus needed, the same thing that Luke needed, the same thing that we need is the need of every person we know, no matter who they are, no matter how important they are in this life, what they all need is access to the power of God for salvation. And we need to remember that. Luke loves this man, obviously as he's revealing the truth to him and saying, I want you to know full on these things that you've been hearing about. So Luke is the writer. The recipient is Theophilus. But what is the message that he's sending? If we go back and look more at Luke 1 now, the message that he's saying is, you need to be certain of these things. He's not saying, just believe because I'm telling you. <laughs> Sometimes we, we kind of work that way when we're trying to teach somebody the gospel. Well, I know it's true. I feel it to be true. You'll feel it too if you just believe. I was studying one time with Mormons, and the thing they told me to do, when I told them I didn't believe their book was from God, they said, well, the book of James says if you will pray and ask with believing, because they were using the scripture that I believed in, then God will give you wisdom. So pray over our book, and all of a sudden you'll just feel like it's scripture. So what I did was I prayed over their book, and I began to notice all the contradictions their book had against the scripture. And so I started writing all of those down and pointing them out to them. Here's what happened when I prayed over your book. I didn't get a feeling from God that this is the right thing, what I kept seeing is where your book contradicts the scripture, you say this is scripture, if it contradicts what I know to be scripture, then this can't be scripture. God's not going to deny himself. So that's what happened when I prayed over their book. But some people try to sell their religion that way. You'll feel it too. Just start doing it and you'll feel it. That's not what God says. God says, let's reason together. Let's analyze the facts. Let's, let's look at the evidence. And that's what Luke has done here. He's unapologetic about the things that he's presenting. He's straightforward about them. He will say things like in Luke 1 and verse 1, I want you to know about all these things that have been fulfilled among us, all these things that have happened. And he says fulfilled. He's talking about prophecy here. He's making an appeal to things that had been promised beforehand by God that he has now fulfilled among us. We have witnessed these things, Luke is saying. These happened with us. Fulfilled prophecy, in fact, is a very strong approach to logic. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul talks about the faith of Abraham. And he says, Abraham believed on God, 
who calls things that don't exist as though they did. He can talk about the future, and he can create things out of nothing. God does that. The creation by design, or the argument by design that presents the fact that there is a creator behind design, that's a very logical argument. That's where Paul begins in Romans 1. It's where he goes in Acts chapter 17 with the Athenian philosophers. He goes to logic, and he says, if you can see that things exist, and there's nothing that comes from nothing, well then obviously something existed and something made all this. And let me tell you, what made all of this was not stone, was not wood, was not clay, was not gold, was not any kind of shaping by man. It's the one, he's the one who made it all. The one you proclaim without knowing, let me proclaim him to you. <laughs> so there's a creator behind all of this. There's a logical connection. There's a logical argument. And that's what Luke looks at. He says, if there was someone who predicted these things hundreds of years before they happened, and they happened exactly as he said, then logically he could see into the future. Logically he has some connection to divine creation that we don't have. He's a God. And God made these prophecies that came true among us. Luke is the one who most repeatedly declares that all has been fulfilled. Let's look at just a few examples in Luke chapter 24, and you'll see several of these if you start looking through Acts especially. But I just love that Luke is the one that keeps saying this over and over. Luke 24, starting at verse 44. This is Jesus speaking now after his resurrection. He's speaking to the apostles. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. We'll see that word again in a moment as well. All these things have been fulfilled, Jesus said, and you have seen it. You've been here for it, for the fulfillment of it. In Acts chapter 13, we'll see that idea again, this use of they've fulfilled all things that were written. Acts chapter 13, verses 26 and following. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear, who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And we could read on to verse 33, but he just goes and shows all the fulfillment that the Jews did because they were ignorant, really, of what God had said. They were unwitting participants in fulfilling the scriptures because they crucified the Christ who had to be crucified. He had to be killed for remission of our sins. And while they didn't understand that, they participated in it. The Romans didn't understand it. They participated in it. And God brought about all that he had promised. Luke, several times through his gospel and through the book of Acts, says they fulfilled all things. He's making an appeal to prophecy. And he tells Theophilus the reason that he's presenting all of these things is so that he can have certainty. He doesn't want him to have any doubts about what he's heard. He's been hearing these stories now that have been going around the Roman uh, Empire from the mouth of the apostles, from the Christians that are beginning to spread. And Luke has firsthand knowledge of these things. He says, I want you to know with certainty these things that you've been hearing about. And so what Luke does, the same thing that all Bible writers do, he begins to present a series of facts. That's what the Bible is. You may think the Bible is a book of theology. It's not. It's a book of, of facts. It's a book of revelation of history. It's a book of revelation of, of wisdom, of God's wisdom. 
There's very little theology, if you want to talk about theology as, a, as an exercise. It's a series of events that makes up the gospel, not some deep exercise in theology. In fact, Paul argues against that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> Part of the problem is that the Romans, the Greek mind, was a philosophical mind, and they wanted something that was deep and philosophical to, to fill their need. And the Jews had become philosophers against the truth of the Bible, and they were missing the point. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God presented some facts, and it was a stumbling stone for the Jews, and there was no wisdom behind it, that nothing great and philosophical, so the, the Gentiles also stumbled at it, the Greeks. And God, just in his simplicity, said, here's what happens. You brought some pretty amazing facts. There's a man who came back from the dead, a man who promised he would do that before it happened, and he did it exactly as he said. That's an amazing fact. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, here's what Paul says about his own teaching. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, there were some things that were being done at the moment this first revelation was coming down, the apostles were performing signs. They were doing as Jesus had done. They spoke truth, and then they backed that truth up with miracles. Those were verifiable acts. They were things people could see and were a part of. They're facts now, historical facts. They're no longer occurring as they did, but we have register of them over and over and over again by credible witnesses. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, I just love this. 1 Corinthians 15, again, here are people that are struggling with faith, struggling with faith in the resurrection. That's a big deal. Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, if Christ is not resurrected, you're still in your sins. And your hope is only in this life. And he says in verse 19, if your hope is only in this life, you're the most pitiable of all men. You have given yourselves to this, and there's nothing to show for it in the end. But since the resurrection is a fact, you ought to give yourself completely to it. But he says, here's the facts. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This was prophesied. He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 6. We'll talk about it in a moment. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. So what is it that makes up the gospel? Is it our ability to present something so beautiful that people just have to believe it? No. <laughs> it's our ability to remember the facts and say, here's what happened. Here's the facts. Let me show you an orderly account of what happened, and you're going to have to make a decision. Can you believe that or not? Credible witnesses believed this. Credible witnesses presented this. There were miracles done to confirm it, but you're going to have to choose to believe. These are the facts. <laughs> it's not our theology that wins people over. It's presenting the facts. And Paul says, Romans 1.16, the gospel, these facts, is sufficient and powerful to save men from sin. So what did Luke do? What does he say he's doing in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1? He's narrating all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's presenting the facts of Jesus' life. <laughs> That's what we ought to do when we're teaching people the gospel. That's what Luke did to try to convince Theophilus of the truth about Jesus. He presented the truth about Jesus. 
It's when we begin to make our theological arguments that we lose people. It's when we try to fight against what they're doing, like the Pharisees and Sadducees did today. They lost track of what the argument was because they began to fight against each other in Acts chapter 21 there, in Acts chapter 22. What we need to be doing is presenting the gospel. And that's what Luke is doing. Luke is a great read. If you want to go just read the facts of the gospel, it's excellent. He says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that Jesus presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. We don't have time to look at those, but Luke, who was a physician, saw enough infallible evidence to be convinced that a dead man had risen. There was enough for him. He presents some of that evidence. You can see it from Luke chapter 24. There are several events that happened there. Jesus eating with them on the beach. He says, you know, a ghost can't eat food, and so he ate with them. Shows them his hands. There's lots of evidence that Luke presents for us. And so I'll, I'll let you have those verses if you want to go look those up. That's just in chapter 24. There's a lot of other evidence in the book of Acts. There's other evidence in other places. But it's amazing to me, one of these instances is when Thomas is not with them. And he doesn't want to believe until he sees the marks in Jesus' hands. And then he sees. And John, he bows down to Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, when he sees. I think it's an important thing that God allowed one of the apostles to be a skeptic. Because I'm a skeptic. I won't believe unless I just see absolute proof. But having a skeptic in the midst, someone like me that says, okay, I've seen it, now I believe, that helps me believe. <laughs> I can't be there anymore standing in that room when Jesus shows his hands. But Thomas was, and he said, okay, it's enough for me. <laughs> That's enough for me also. He was there. <laughs> having someone like this scientist, like this physician, who I know is not just going to accept anybody's word for the arisen dead man, but he says, yes, this happened. <laughs> And he can confirm it as a scientist, as a, as a physician. Having these people among the early believers, that bolsters our faith. Those are people that aren't going to be duped so easily. So often there were these, these criticisms about the Gospels that they would present these effects from demon possession that we all know today was really just epilepsy or it was just some kind of other kind of disease that causes these things. But Luke expressly calls some things demon possession and some things physical maladies. <laughs> He's a physician. He knows the difference. Demon possession sometimes can mimic physical maladies. In fact, the devil wants us to suffer physical maladies. It's exactly what he's going to do. But there's a distinction made by a physician between demon possession and physical maladies. It's an important thing to know the difference of. And to have this man there helps us in our faith. We see there is a spiritual reality behind even the physical that we're living. And Luke helps us see that. Luke relies very heavily on eyewitnesses. In fact, that's one of the words that he most uses toward the end of Luke and all through the first part of the book of Acts over and over and over again. This word eyewitnesses is one of Luke's most used words. In fact, I love when he uses it. In fact, I was noting it today as we were studying. There's all the times I found it just in uh, Luke and Acts, and there's many more than that. I just did a short list. The word that he used specifically in Acts chapter 22 and verse 20, at least in the New King James, today we were looking at this text and he's talking about when Jesus comes to Paul and is talking to him. And Paul is talking back to Jesus and he says, when your martyr Stephen's blood was shed, I was standing there giving, giving the signal. <laughs> when your martyr, the literal word is martis, it's got an S on the end instead of an R in Greek, and it is the word that became known for these people who were witnesses. It's the actual word for witness in Greek, but it became known for people who were witnesses that were willing to give their lives to prove that they really believed what they were saying. They had seen it, and they would die to prove that they had seen it. That's where the word martyr comes from. It's the Greek word witness. 
And so over and over and over, Luke uses this word in his gospel and in the book of Acts. In fact, Luke himself was a witness. <laughs> he had seen the apostle Paul preach about these truths and then do these confirming signs. Now, he wasn't there in Corinth, but Paul speaks about the process that he used in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. <laughs> Paul was an apostle, and he proved his apostleship by teaching and then by doing the miracles that all the other apostles could do. And Luke was a witness to that. How else would he have believed? He saw the power of God at work in this witness that was teaching this, these truths and these facts. Now, witness testimony today, especially by people who deny the Bible, they say, well, that's really kind of weak evidence. But historically, a witness account, that, that, uh, that takes care of everything. That resolves every question. In fact, we certainly see that in the Old Testament. It's why God said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, do not bear false witness because you'll ruin the credibility of how witnesses work. If you begin to bear false witness, don't do it. Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, whenever you're going to testify against someone to put them to death, I don't want just one witness. There better be at least two. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. That becomes... A, a kind of a catchphrase that's used in all different ways. It was originally about when someone's being held up as guilty for murder. But it became a way to testify to the truth of all kinds of things. In fact, Paul says that about the letters he wrote to the Corinthians. That he's now writing them a third letter and he's coming to them a third time. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be established. I'll be here several times and I've testified to you all of these times. But he writes to second, in 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2. I just love this. Paul uses this concept over and over. It just shows how concrete this was in the ancient world and how it ought to be still concrete today if people weren't such liars, if we could trust this witness. But these men are credible witnesses, and we'll talk about that in just a second. I think it's an important thing. But he's telling Timothy, you carry on what you've heard because the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The concept of eyewitness testimony historically has always been in high regard, and Luke relies heavily on eyewitnesses. I want to talk to you about a witness test. This is from a, uh, an article called Psychology, Public Policy, and Law in March of 2001. I've looked at the more recent version of this article, and they've changed some of the wording. Our culture is changing, and the way they look at things is starting to change. So I got the older article. Uh, psychology, Public Policy, and Law from Macklin and others. They talk about how to know if a witness is really credible. And they were talking about eyewitness testimony. If someone really saw or if they had kind of been coerced into thinking that's what they saw. How can you tell? And there are these tests. They call them four tests. I see them kind of more as three. Was there enough exposure time? Were they there long enough to really see what they thought they saw? Was there a delay between the time they saw it and the time they began to speak about it? Was there too long of a time period and they kind of got fuzzy on the details? And was there enough going on to arouse their attention so they would pay attention to it? You know, I might say I was an eyewitness of something that happened in the side lot after I heard a noise and run out there, but I've already missed it. But I might say, you know, I was here and I saw it. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm not really an eyewitness. I saw what happened afterward. So we got to test someone. Were they there were they there to see it all? Did they have enough exposure time? Was there too long of a time between the, the, uh, the speaking of it? And was there enough attention to, to rouse them to look at it? 
So I would like for us to use Luke to examine the ones he's calling witnesses on those categories, that this is a legal paper. That's, that's how you look at witnesses. What about the question of exposure time? What does Luke say about that? In Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, when he reveals to us their process of choosing a, an apostle to, stay, to go into the place of Judas, look what they say. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Who are they looking for? Of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They wanted somebody who had been there for three or more years that would be able to know all the things Jesus was doing. Someone who could truly be a witness with us of his resurrection. That's the, the important thing. But they had to make sure they had the right guy so they could say then, yeah, he's the one who resurrected. I was with him all this time. I know it's him. <laughs> so that was the first thing. Was there enough exposure time? All of the apostles <laughs> and the ones they replaced them with had been there with them for several years. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, after his uh, coming back to life, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If someone had came back to life and I saw him for like two seconds, <laughs> and I said, oh, I know he's back to life. I saw him. I just caught a glimpse of him. Uh, people would probably doubt me. <laughs> if I sat and talked to him face to face for 10 minutes, and I could say, look, this person came back to life. I sat and talked with him. People might be willing to believe a 10-minute conversation. But 40 days? <laughs> That's how long they were walking with Jesus after his resurrection. They had plenty of exposure time. These eyewitnesses easily passed the test of exposure time. But what about delay? Did these things happen and then they began speaking of it 100 years later? With Buddhism, that's what happened. All the stories about Mahatma and, and uh, when he became this bodhisattva, that he died and the flowers all began to bloom around him at the day of his death, those things began circulating 420 years after his death. <laughs> there was nobody alive who could say, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> or nobody could say, yeah, that's the way I saw it too. 400 and some odd years after his death. The things that happened with Jesus began to circulate the week after he resurrected. And then from that time forward, there were lots of people who would deny these things, but were unable to. They tried. But in Luke chapter 24, we see this question of uh, their presence with him. And was there much of a delay? Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49. We read that earlier, but it's where he tells them that they're going to... Uh, be preaching about repentance and remission in his name to all nations. That's at the end of verse, uh, verse 47. You're witnesses of these things. Then he says, verse 49, tarry in the city of Jerusalem till you're endued with power from on high. I want you to be my witnesses, but you're going to have to wait a while. Wait in Jerusalem until the time is right for you to be my witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he tells them with a little more detail, it's going to happen not many days from now. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, we find out that happens in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that would be 10 days after. <laughs> he walked with them for 40 days after Passover. And then Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So there's 10 day delay. That's a pretty short period of time. <laughs> 10 days later, they received this uh, Holy Spirit to help them in their, in their witness. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, when Peter is, is handing down the accusation, he's accusing the people that are standing there because they were the ones involved. <laughs> They're the very people who were there when Jesus was crucified. And so he says, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, Acts 2.33. 
Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. You want to know why this is happening? Because of what just happened back in Passover when you crucified an innocent man. That's why this is happening now. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I said I wanted to read that verse earlier. When Paul said he appeared first to the eleven, then, then to me, or then to Cephas, and then, and then he appeared over 500 brethren at once, the better part of whom are still alive. What Paul's saying, basically, is if you don't believe me, there's 500 witnesses. Go ask them. You can still check the witnesses at this point. No longer can we do that. But there were so many opportunities to check the witnesses because the delay was very short. They certainly meet the delay test with no issues. What about attention and arousal? Was, was it enough going on to make them want to pay attention? Oh, this guy came back to life, but I've got, I've got to go plow my field. <laughs> I've got other stuff I need to take care of. I can't be talking to this guy that came back to life. That's a pretty exciting thing. <laughs> Were they paying enough attention? I'm not going to read again the, the, the text in Luke chapter 24, but over and over they're asking questions of Jesus. Are they paying attention? Enough to ask questions, certainly. Acts chapter 1, they want to know, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, don't worry about that. That's not for you to know. But they're asking specific questions. And then they're active in their response to the things he says. They had plenty of attention, and they were aroused to know what was going on. Exposure time, delay, attention and arousal. These people would be picked up in a heartbeat as eyewitnesses in a court of law today. Why do we reject their message? Well, it's simple. Their message asks us to change who we are. The message they were supposed to preach to the world, Jesus said, is repentance. Now, the blessing on the other side of that is remission of sins. Go out and preach repentance and remission of sins. But who wants to repent? The Pharisees, the most religious group in Jesus' day, when they came to John's baptism, he said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath? Show me some fruits of repentance, and then maybe I'll consider. And you know what they did? They walked away. They didn't want to bring fruits of repentance. They didn't want some crazy guy that came out of the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey to tell them they needed to repent of their sins, and so they didn't repent. What happens today when we begin to share this simple message, these simple facts with people, but there's a catch at the end. You've got to stop living your sinful life. People say, that's too much. I like the life I'm living. I studied with a lady and her two daughters for over a year in Brazil. Over a year. We got to the end of Mark, and they were so excited. And I started talking about their need for baptism and repentance, and they said, we love our life. We love the parties, and we love all these things we're doing. We're not going to do that. I said, well, you understand that you are living in sin. And they were all living in sin in various ways. And they said, yes, but we enjoy this. And I said, well, you know what the Bible's been teaching for a year. Oh, yeah, but we just like studying. We don't really want to do that. They said, you ought to go study with somebody else. And so I did. <laughs> it was so sad for me. A year spent studying with these people and thinking, I'm thinking they're putting this into practice. It's hard. And I told them the gospel is not for everyone. Salvation is meant for all those who will repent and receive it. But there are many who called and few who actually will, will come and follow. But think about what we've learned today about Luke and about Theophilus. <laughs> you got these two Roman guys. Theophilus, this powerful Roman figure. Luke, this important and beloved physician. And yet when they're presented with these simple facts that we've been looking at of the gospel of a man 
who lived a perfect life, and he came and he laid his life down to pay the price for our sins. And all he asked in return is that we deny ourselves, take up the cross and join him on this, on this walk, that we repent so he can forgive us of our sins. That's the good news, that God's willing to forgive us of our sins. If they had enough evidence to believe, you've got enough evidence to believe. John closes his gospel by saying, there are a lot more signs, a lot more things I could have written. If I wrote it all, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. But these few, he wrote between seven and ten specific miracles, these few are enough for you to believe and believing have life in his name. It's not a lack of abundance of material. It's not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of desire on our part to have someone else tell us what we need to do. Well, that someone else is God. It's not me telling you. It's the Lord who's telling you. There is enough evidence to believe. The question is, do you believe? Are you willing to come forth and confess that Jesus is the Christ? And all this evidence points to that very fact, that his resurrection is the proof that we need, that he is the divine son of God who has overcome sin and is willing to forgive us of ours if we'll confess his name, if we'll repent and come forward to be washed clean in the waters of baptism. We'd love to help you do that today. If you believe, won't you make that known to us? If you are a Christian and you've been struggling, if you're faltering in your belief, look at the evidence again. Go back and look at what Luke is presenting here. He strengthened his faith on these facts. You can strengthen your faith on these facts. What can we do to help you today? If there is a need you have, please let us know. Come forward and let us know. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.